the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Today I'm talking with Air Vice Marshal RB, Bob Trelaw, AO, retired. Now Bob graduated as an RAAF pilot in February 1968. He then served in South Vietnam with No. 9 Squadron, 1969-1970, flying Huey helicopters in support of the Australian Task Force, including aeromedical evacuations, dust-off extractions of wounded personnel, insertion and extraction of SAS patrols, combat assaults, gunship operations, people sniffers and psychological operations. He was mentioned in dispatches for action in Vietnam. He was posted to fighters, including overseas postings to Butterworth, Malaysia, with number 75 and 3 squadrons flying mirages. He commanded the RAAF's first operational FA-18 squadron. He subsequently commanded the Integrated Air Defence System at Butterworth, Malaysia. He was Commander Australian Theatre 1999 to 2001. Bob actually joined the New South Wales Centenary of Anzac Advisory Council on its formation in 2012 and within the Council chaired the History Committee responsible for the development and publishing of New South Wales and the Great War, which is a fantastic book and it's available to purchase. Just go to the Hyde Park War Memorial, which is a social and military history of New South Wales during the WW1 period. And as we wait to start, one of those... F-35's a great sound flies over. Here we are at Fighter World and Williamtown. Maybe there'll be one or two more to come. Bob, g'day. G'day, Gareth. How are you? Look, I'm exceedingly well. Why did you join the RAAF in 1968? Oh, I wanted to fly, like every other starstruck young kid around the streets. Um, the lure of flying, the attraction. Um, I always wanted to fly military aircraft and join the Air Force. But in those days, military aviation was fairly risky. Quite a few accidents. It wasn't that sophisticated with its aircraft type. I guess its training levels. And uh, we had... The Air Force had a series of accidents uh, all the way through the late 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, coming from World War II and Korea. Um, By way of example, um, the Air Force touch wood hasn't had a fatal accident now since 1994 or 5, I think it is. So you so can what's, see the military... Is that changing or are the, the aircraft safer? What's, why oh, would I that think be? the aircraft are better, uh, better um, presented to the pilot. Um, I think that uh, they have so many more safeguards. They're easier to fly than the old aircraft were. Uh, and the training levels are quite sophisticated. They now have computer-aided training. They uh, have um, comp- um, simulators that are just fantastic, as yep. if you're sitting in the real aeroplane. In my day, we didn't have those. And when I flew the Sabre, we had a, um, a procedural trainer bolted to a concrete floor and you sat there and learned your checks. And I mean, <laughs> that was quite different. And the first time you released the brakes in a Sabre to get airborne, apart from being 
very scared or concerned, uh, that was the first time I actually experienced what a, what a saver felt like to fly. What did it feel like? Oh, it felt terrific once you got over the initial shock of getting the getting it airborne, getting the wheels up, and not overspeeding the undercarriage. I believe. There, it was only a single seat cockpit. It was only ever single seat. Your so first, when first you were being taught, someone flew beside you. Yeah, a bloke called Gary Gent. Uh, he was my instructor, and he, you'd line up on the centre line of the runway. Let's that F thirty five go by. You know, I'm going to remember these uh, chats very fondly because every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. I think, yeah, so isn't that I. a fantastic? Sound? Yeah, so do I. Love it. So he flew beside you, and. Yes, you'd like so your up. very first flight, yes. there was no one there helping you. No, no. Well, he was there to give you advice, but you actually flew the aeroplane. Yeah. And I think like most people, we always joke and say that we got airborne because our feet slipped off the brakes. <laughs> Touche. What did you do before 1968? Were you at school still and went straight from school or what? Yeah, I, went, I left school, uh, matriculated from in Victoria, and then started pilot training at Moorabbin Airport um, because military flying was seen to be dangerous in those days. Mm. Mum and Dad weren't real keen on me joining the Air Force. So I went halfway and said, I'll go and do pilot training at, uh, at Moorabbin and become an airline pilot or you know, a commercial pilot. Um, and I, I guess they felt that way because uh, a bloke over the road about two, a block or so away had joined the Air Force and lost his legs in a Tiger Moth accident at Point Cook. Mm. And we sometimes see him walk past the house with, with mm. on crutches. So I guess that wasn't a strong point in favour of the Air Force in mum and dad's eyes. Um, but uh, halfway through the first year was the draft for conscription and I convinced mum and dad that um, really I didn't need to go to Vietnam and walk around the jungle, I'd rather fly over it. And so uh, your choice, rather than go through the draft, I join up, I, I don't go through the draft and I'm going to go to Vietnam anyway. Correct. And I was going to play one against the other and see how I went. But in fact... Uh, they, they said it'd take three or four months to join. It took three weeks. Um, mm -hmm. I joined the Air Force on a Wednesday. On the Thursday, um, the ballot results came out. I wasn't in the ballot. And on the Friday, I won a uh, scholarship to go fly commercial So if you aviation. had been in the ballot, does that mean you would have been a conscript rather than someone joining the RAAF, or did you no. have then have a choice? No, I'd have stayed as a volunteer in the RAAF. Okay. Yeah, that okay. would have overridden the conscription. A lot of people, in fact, one of the very young members of the another F-35 is coming! I just love that sound. One of the younger members of the RAAF that I spoke to talked about the process of when they first got their uniform and the, what the next six months was like. Can you recall what it was like for you when you first were given the uniform and you're now in the RAAF, brother. <laughs> oh, I think so. Well, the first day we arrived at Point Cook, it was typical Melbourne weather. It was low overcast, drizzle rain, cold. It was October. And um, we the bus dropped us off at the barracks. Um, we were to find our, uh, after our way in. And my recollection was seeing all these other cadets standing around in long great coats, hats, white bands on them and then scurrying off to their, what are they about to do? And uh, it was just a sense of, um, uh, it was a very welcome sense. I actually felt at home straight mm -hmm. away. It was something that I wanted to do and all of a sudden I was there and I was gonna be a part of it and it was mm -hmm. exciting. I spoke to a young engineer who joined up in 2016 and he was talking about before he actually went in, he was expecting, you know, the full metal jacket situation with great discipline and everyone telling you what to do and bossing you around. 
but he found that wasn't the case. What about in 1968? Was that the case or not the case? It must have changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all bossed around. I think uh, all of us in that, that era, um, there were four courses running through Point Cook at the time. It was the build-up for was Vietnam was running and the Air Force had a couple of squadrons up in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, already they had to find air crew to fill these squadrons. And... Um, so discipline and busyness of the Air Force was, was quite high. Hmm. Um, and I think it was a bit of a hanger over the old Air Force from WW2 and from Korea there. Discipline was strong and uh, the, hmm. the, we had four courses around. The senior course had the, the pleasure of marching around the base. The three junior courses were at the double. Hmm. So yeah, that was an indication of the sort of discipline we had. I want to talk about other things. Let's just focus on Vietnam for the moment. Let's go to 1969, uh, May of 1969. In fact, May 15. You were called in, and you can tell us what you were flying and why you were flying it, etc., to assist a medevac, and it was your first flight. Can you recall that, that event, May 15, 1969? Uh, yes, I can, R quite clearly, actually. Um, it the trip was meant to be uh, a quick run around the, pro the province to see where all the main points are. We had what we called Picto maps. They were a, a, an aerial photograph of the area and they had an overlay of grid references and some contour lines so you knew exactly where you were. An excellent map. So the idea was to fly around the, uh, the province, find out where all the main key points were, the areas to be wary of, the don't goes, the mm -hmm. okay areas. Um, <clears throat> and that was the flight, excuse me, from where we were based at Vung Tau up to Nui Dat first and look at the army base where mm -hmm. the, the task force was and then go do this mission. Halfway up there there's a, there's a little village, well, it was a big village called Dat Do, it was a, it was a Catholic village mm -hmm. and it was circular in design, I don't know why. And um, as we were flying up past there at a couple of thousand feet, one of the crewmen spotted Green Tracer coming out of the, the middle of the village. And green Tracer was used by the Viet Cong, the, the NVA. Um, so it wasn't ours. Okay. Um, the captain, John Sampson, who was been there for quite some time, adept and didn't really need a co-pilot at the stage, which was just as well. well you were the co-pilot. I was the co-pilot. Right. Sorry. And um, uh, identified, got onto the radio frequency and found the uh, American U.S. Army captain who was looking after, or was the liaison officer with the, uh, the uh, South Vietnamese Army company, and he was calling for assistance. He wanted, uh, they'd encountered a, a group of VC who attacked the village or come from within the village. And there was a, a fairly big street fight going on mm -hmm. in the village in the, in the village. So um, Sambo said, yes, we can help you um, without asking the crew. Yeah, I, I might have been- He's the more, captain. I might have been a bit more reluctant. <laughs> but uh, I remember coming into the village at, uh, We'd come from, this is my first ride, and we'd come from a peacetime environment with peacetime regulations and restrictions. We were down low, right amongst the, the paddy fields. Up, He did a great bit of flying up over the top of some trees, palm trees, and landed fair and square in the middle of the uh, village, centre of the village square. The army captain raced over and spoke to me and said, can we take out his wounded and, and others need to get on with the fight? And to which we said yes. So they literally threw bodies in the back of the chopper, um, wounded and, and dead. Many? Uh, I think from memory it took about seven. Right. And then um, there were, we were in the middle of a firefight, so there were bits and pieces floating around everywhere. And uh, that was where I first saw my VC, a VC soldier up front. And that was a, 
a very sobering uh, I can experience. Imagine. I can imagine. And that was your first flight? Yes. The cooperation between the United States service personnel and the Australian personnel, you in particular, what was that based on or what was it like? Because uh, he's an American captain asking you for help. You've come and helped. Oh, well, it's, it was they were allies. I mean, we're there, we'd grown up with the Americans as our allies, hmm. you know. As a kid, World War II was still given fresh. to us, fresh. Uh, and the alliance and that they, they actually helped Australia. So we had, a, I think, a strong kinship uh, with the Americans. And this guy was a soldier in the... That F-35? In the He Sorry, was, he Bob. Was, he was an ally in need of uh, assistance. He was asking for it. And you didn't think twice. You just offered it and, and, and gave it. We'll come to other incidents in a moment, but I still... He, by the way, he, uh, after the firefight, he was found exploring with his throat cut. Oh, really? Yeah, so he didn't survive that, uh, that uh, firefight. Yeah, tragic. That's a tragedy of war. I often think, all right, Air Force... Planes safe up there, dogfights maybe doing whatever, but a, a chopper. You are vulnerable, surely. Oh yes, completely. I mean, um, we had control of the air, um, so we didn't have anybody to interfere with us, and a helicopter wouldn't survive in that sort of hostile environment, air hostile environment, and certainly um, it was very vulnerable to ground fire. Um, and so much so that we would fly over wooded areas above 4,000 feet from, away from small arms mm -hmm. and over wooded or jungle areas where the enemy couldn't get a clear shot at you. But um, in, that f in your first flight, in that medivac assistance, you said that the, the captain of the, the chopper flew over the palms and landed. Yes. Well, yes. You, you are a sitting duck. Oh, we felt that way. Yes, when you're strapped in, I mean, you try and make yourself as small as possible. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's part of the job. The job was to, to assist the army. And this happened to be the South Vietnamese Army and an American advisor in the first instance, but our real task was to support the, the Australian Army in the task. So force. would, the, would the, the fighters, the fighter planes, mm -hmm. uh, have gone in first to make sure, not this particular instance, but gone in first to make things are safe, and then the choppers come in? No, no. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. How it did it work? Generally, it's the uh, first point of call is uh, for air assistance from gunships, right. from a helicopter from 9 Squad, yep. and with the, we're talking now about Australian environment, mm -hmm. or Australian participation. Uh, the first port of call will be for either medevac assistance or gunship assistance mm. by the Army, and if, if it escalated, as it did on several occasions, then you'd find yourself with uh, a forward air controller being brought in and uh, calling in for um, fighter ground attack. Mm. June 6, Binbar. The, what happened there? With uh, You were in the lead gunship at that stage? or Again, I was a co-pilot. I just moved from flying slicks uh, or support helicopters, um, which were only armed with a single M60 either side, to flying gunships and had to go through my apprenticeship on gunships. So I was doing that at the time. What happened in Binbar on that date? Well, uh, there, were, there were a group of, there was a, a, a tank and an APC moving up the main highway up to the north of the, the province. Ours or theirs? Ours, sorry. Yep. I never saw a, a Vietnamese tank, thankfully. Okay. Um, and they are ambushed um, by um, a battalion of North Vietnamese regulars. They had taken over the town. They had uh, locked the women and children into the uh, church and forced them in to go and forage for food. They were 
town there to do that and to undermine our authority because they're only about seven, ten kilometres from Nui Dat base. Mm-hmm. Um, once the tank was fired on call for assistance, then five RAR Alpha Company, I think, came in in the first call and uh, they started to then prosecute a battle. But um, these people were, the, the North Vietnamese, were well entrenched into the house systems. There are about six rows, seven rows of houses, about ten rows in a house running east-west. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, tanks uh, moving into the area, which was unusual. Um, they went in without infantry support, which is also unusual because normally you need infantry to keep the tank safe from the other sure. infantry. Um, and they started to destroy a couple of houses while the our army regrouped and had people to the south and the west of the town to form a, a, an attacking force. Mm. But they had to move across a large uh, open area before they could attack, and that would have been bad because the southern row of houses, against which was the main uh, the main uh, fortification by the North Vietnamese. Uh, had a cl- complete access and had heavy machine guns uh, to would have made a, a real mess of our people. So they called us in and asked us to destroy the southern row of houses and, and take out the people in those houses and suppress the fire. Uh, we did that on a, on a couple of passes. And on one pass, um, we were carrying... The gunship carried 14 uh, 2.75 folding fin rockets mm-hmm. and they carried uh, two miniguns, which had about 6,000 rounds a minute. The aircraft, on both sides of the one aircraft. on each side. Yes. Yeah, the um, about ten thousand, or there were ten thousand rounds of minigun seven point six two in the back of the chopper, and they had uh, two. They had twin M sixty guns either side of the chopper with four hundred rounds for the guns. So we were pretty. He- we were overweight actually, but we were pretty heavily armed. And uh, on one occasion, we were firing rockets into the houses to blow the house through the tiles and hopefully suppress the fire from the people inside. Um, we had a hang fire on one of the rockets. It was a, a slow-burning rocket. It was, it had been activated. It was burning. It was, and, but not enough force to leave the the tube and yep. and do its business. Uh, and that was dangerous because that could go off at any time. The way we were attacking the, this row of southern row of houses, we were breaking off to the left over our friendly, so that we didn't didn't get any enemy fire on us. We were very vulnerable sure. at that stage. Um, the, we were worried that if it broke off that way, then the rocket came off it again into friendlies and that was not been really no, bad sure uh, anyway the rocket did come off just at the last minute we were out of, the, out of options and the, the firing pass came off went straight down armed hit a house in front of us and blew the, the house up hmm. if you like uh, but one lone housing tile just twirled up into the air in front of us and sat stationary in front of us and the helicopter twitched left and right which I didn't pay any attention to and then whacked the tile coming through the roof through the windscreen <sighs> Hit, us, hit into the back of the uh, the chopper. And this is in this Binbar. All this happened in this Binbar incident. Yes, yes. This is the was known as the Battle of Binbar after the event, and um, which is rather concerning. I mean, I was a bit concerned about that. And I asked the captain later why we were twitched. The helicopter twitched left and right. And he said, "Well, I was trying to work out which side I could put it so to go through your windscreen and not mine." Uh, okay. Let but me he ask, said it with a smile. Let me ask a silly question. Did you ever see the film Apocalypse Now? Yes, I did. Okay. Do you recall, and they used Wagner's Ride of the Valkyrie as the music, recall the American helicopters going in for an attack. Yes. Is that picture accurate in terms of what was involved with helicopter attacks? Uh, a lot of it was Hollywood. Um, gee, the attacks that we did were very um, 
there weren't large-scale battles. I mean, this is a battle of Bay, and yes, there were lots of lots of gunfire and tracer moving around, but it wasn't the end of the world sort of battle sure. you see in Hollywood. So, in that battle, how many choppers were involved in terms of Australians? Um, two gunships. Two gunships. And we right. called in the third gunship, uh, who was on standby. So we had three gunships working the fight, and. Um, after we had taken out the southern row of houses, one of the tanks was um, disabled. Oh, it had been disabled beforehand, that's why we did the tank part yeah. of the run. And uh, we saw North Vietnamese soldiers approaching the tank, and remember our tank didn't have any infantry to protect it. So the gunship came to its... So we, we rolled in, or my captain rolled in, and um, sprayed the area around the, where the, the enemy soldiers were approaching the tank to deter them and right. think that was a bad idea and um, we also sprayed uh, the chopper the uh, the tank with um, 7.62 minigun i talked to one of the occupants of the tank years later at a reunion he said yes i remember that he said it sounded just like rain hitting the roof so but it was effective that uh, saved the uh, the tank crew all right uh, august 21 and i think you've described this as a desperate one uh, you ec- extracting wounded aussies from northwest of Nuidat. do you recall that particular uh, incident? Yeah, yes. I'd, I'd only recently achieved my combat captain in Vietnam. It was, it was a three-month work, mm. working process. Um, and um, I think it was about my third ride. Uh, I was supposed to be the brigadier's aircraft on call, which is really the brigadier's taxi. And mm. he'd, just, he'd call you up and he wants to go somewhere and you immediately get there from Vung Tau and take him wherever he wants and keep him happy, basically. <laughs> um, and I said, oh, it's going to be a pretty quiet day. And um, I think it was late morning. I actually forget the exact time now. But uh, we were scrambled to do a, um, a medevac up in the northwest of the province, in the Hutsik area. The reason we did that was the rest of the squadron were already committed to a combat assault out on the eastern part of the province. So the choppers and support had all gone over that way, and we were the reserve. Um, the time we arrived at the, uh, the scene, it was Alpha Company 5 RAR, mm-hmm. and they... Um, Excuse me. Uh, they'd walked into a bunker complex and been ambushed and quite badly hurt. They eventually had one dead and 34 wounded out of their company size of a bit less than 100 people. Um, and they were pinned down. They couldn't move. They couldn't get in or couldn't get out. Uh, when we arrived, uh, we knew where the battle area or the firefight was. We could see trace of around the place. And there was an American U.S. Army uh, dust-off helicopter already engaged. It was in the hover and he winched out three wounded soldiers. Um, then his co-pilot was wounded um, during the, uh, the last winching, so they then immediately left the area, which is very understandable. They then said, then called us in, which was interesting, having just seen the, 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 the fate of the first chopper. But, uh, I mean... And you're captain at this stage. I was a captain. Yeah. You, you don't say no. You, no it's, just not, it's just not in your, your, your lexicon. Uh, briefed the crew and told them what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, if anything happened to us, what we'd have to do internally, if there's a crew coordination. Um, and we went in uh, to this, where they always throw smoke to give the exact location where mm. they want you to be. If they did that, we we've arrived at the smoke, found the area, the crewmen uh, vectored me over the, the area where the, the wounded were. Um, when we started to winch them out, I, we winched out three in all. Um, at that stage, the fire, the, the enemy fire was getting heavier. Um, at your chopper? All, all around the all place. Around, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, I could see down between my feet, you could see through bamboo where 
our soldiers were and just literally beyond them is where the enemy were in the complexes. So um, we winched the third person up and at that stage the ground commander who was very good with his and he said something like um, dust off, dust off, piss off, piss off. <laughs> I remember that quite clearly. <laughs> um, you're taking fire. And um, we were, so we, I started to, to move as the chopper away from where the enemy were. Were, the enemy were about our right one o'clock at about 30 metres, I suppose. Yes. 30, 40 metres, in that, in that area anyway. Um, and we started, I started to move the chopper away when we were hit by the ground fire. We'd already been hit by, uh, or bits of shrapnel had hit the chopper from an RP, a rocket-propelled grenade um, in the area, and a very close um, rocket from one of our own gunships, because it was a very close encounter. Uh, and um, the rounds we took, unfortunately, hit through the, the all around the chopper, one between my feet and one through the instrument panel, which only took off the co-pilot. But uh, the rounds that hit the back of the chopper hit one of the soldiers who was lying on litter, already had a bit of a bad chest wound opened up, and that hit him a few, a couple more times. Great, so he's just And the crewman was hit with the shrapnel from the floor, the aluminium floor, and that that caused him grief for the rest of his life. He lives just over the road in the mm. Terrace. All right, well, let's go a month later. Alpha Company 6RAR, again, medivac. Um, the US go in, but what happens then? Because you're in a Bush Ranger 71 helicopter then, weren't you? Yeah, we were. Um, and uh, but just before you tell me, what is special about a Bush Ranger 71 <laughs> helicopter? Okay, uh, Bush Ranger 71, as the, was their call sign, was the lead gunship. We had uh, three gunships, three aircraft helicopters um, configured for gunships, and they would, if they were flying at the same time, at a Bush Ranger 71, 72, 73. Okay, makes sense. And they'd be the leader and the, and the wingman. Um, the US dust off chopper, this is almost the same area that had the incident in August. So um, it was so a hot, it was a hot, hot it was a hot area. <laughs> and uh, having already had uh, maybe other choppers as well hit, I don't know, from the US uh, dust off, but certainly I knew of one had been hit. Uh, I was a little reluctant to get into the, uh, to pull out the uh, our wounded because uh, the company couldn't uh, guarantee the security of the, the LZ. Mm-hmm. Um, and we convinced him that if we went down beside him, flew in formation and, and, and decoyed uh, for him and suppressed any enemy fire that we could see, then he was happy with that. So we did that. And it worked really well because we took a hit. And uh, it hit the, your tank, your petrol tank. Hit the it? fuel tank, yes. And um, that immediately took our minds off uh, everything else. You had uh, to get out. Well, we had to, yes. The, the crewmen had called that were on fire. Because uh, he could see, he thought smoke coming out of the back of the chopper. It turned out to be fuel, which was good and bad. Uh, but we were losing fuel very quickly. So he went about five kilometres, five clicks, to um, um, a fire support base, a, a section of guns, 25, 105s, and, um, well, 25s, I guess they were, um, and um, to put down there because we... But didn't you put down in a minefield? Well, we weren't going to make it back to Nui Dat, so we put down the biggest area we could find to put the... Uh, Which was a minefield? Uh, yes, it was. It turned out to be that. We didn't know that and we did that, of course. But um, a heavily loaded uh, gunship is is either on the Maxwell at weight or over the Maxwell at weight of, of an Iroquois, and they're very bit, bit 
sensitive to handle it sometimes. So we found the big area, that looked good to us. We put it down just beside the guns. We thought we'd be secure. Um, we sat there, shut the engine down, and we sat there for a few minutes, and eventually a, a soldier came out and said, in the middle of our minefield, um, <laughs> Gee, you, should, you know, like, kind of sort of berated us for being in his minefield. But uh, so we said, okay. Um, we eventually, we all, all four of us tracked out of the aircraft at that stage, took the documents we had to keep classified, and up uh, he followed a path, so he followed him through and up over the buns. Uh, they, the guns were always, always protected by about an eight-foot mound that, that, that they'd put in, so it was yes. a big, big pile of dirt. Up over the top of the pile of dirt or wall of dirt, into the uh, to talk to the ground commander, who was unhappy that we were there because he had a fire mission running, and um, he also said, "Well, you can't leave." It. it was getting right on last light. He said, "You can't leave a thing there overnight," and we said, "We can't fly it out." So he said, well, you can't leave it there fully armed. So he sent us back, the um, four of us to go and unload the full chopper, which was 14 rockets, 10,000 rounds of, of minigun. So we had to break the, all the rounds into sections, follow this line through the, the, the minefield, up over the bund, and it, it was then dark, so they put searchlights on, or spotlights on for us, and there was just a black jungle behind us, and there was the, the bright lights in front of us, and we all felt about 20 feet tall because we're not far, not that far from when we took the hits however nothing happened it was just um, and what happened just out of interest to the helicopter in the middle of the minefield uh the, they called in the american chinook and it lifted it out and took it back to the to base and they chopped us out about midnight uh, next year 1970 uh, it's, oh, yeah. it's February 1970, February 28, not a leap year. Uh, it's been a long day. First action, uh, nine squadron under flares. What happens then? Uh, it was a normal gunship day. We'd had a couple of, uh, couple of contacts to, to support. Um, nothing that you'd write home about. But um, one of the companies was not far east of, uh, of Nui Dat and uh, ran into significant uh, opposition. And we spent several hours, or yeah, probably an hour and a half, with supporting them, close fire support, uh, which turned into to dark as the, the night hit. Mm. Um, we called in one of our other choppers. We couldn't get American support. Normally, Americans would come in with a flare ship if we had to fly at night. Sure. We didn't fire very often at night uh, at all, and we didn't certainly didn't do a lot of gunship operations at night. Was but, that both <laughs> true for Americans and also Australians? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, but there's, you know, there's always exceptions to every rule. Sure, sure. But um, our own people had uh, the the large, the large flare, three foot long, they drop out uh, under a parachute. So they actually came and did parachute, parachuted these flares out for us to keep the support up. Mm. And we worked for a quite a, quite a long time at, at after dark. The enemy enclosed close close into them, so they really couldn't extricate themselves for quite some time. Mm. Um, my recollection was there were several wounded, but nobody killed in that particular activity. Oh, that's good. You mentioned a little while ago that one of the, the, your roles was uh, a taxi for a brigadier. Oh, yes. That uh, was every now and then brigadier, got, got a good job. Brigadier Sandy Pearson. What was he like? He was a wonderful guy. Wonderful guy? Wonderful. He was a good... How, well... How did he respond when you landed him in mud and he had to get out of the chopper and he was up to his whatever <laughs> in mud? What happened then? Well, um... I was I was lucky enough to be the captain of that particular flight. Oh, were you you still captain after it? Yeah, Sorry. yeah, kind of. Uh, he uh, wanted us to uh, take him down to the Delta. It was quite some way from where we normally did our operations, yep. and quite insecure. 
uh, when we got down there, it was in the middle of the wet season. It was just, it was just like an inland sea. And we'd, we went to the spot. There were a lot of other choppers there before us because it was a big conference he was going to. And we were trying to find somewhere that was dry that we could put him down on. So the co-pilot, the bloke called Ted Bark, was flying. Lovely, lovely chap. And he, um, he was doing the flying and trying to find the right spot to let the brigadier out with due uh, courtesy and aplomb. However, the brigadier must have been a bit uh, testy or a bit itchy because he jumped out of the chopper <laughs> from about three feet, missed the hard, hard stand and went straight up his knees in mud, which we saw and thought, <laughs> well, I thought, well, there goes, there go our careers, we're done. And uh, he and his ADC who then had to follow him jumped out and, and they went off to their meeting. We found a dry spot, put the chopper down and told him where we were. Waited for him to come back. Waited for him to come back. It was an interesting wait for us. You know, and when he uh, did come back, what did he say? Well, we had the engine running, waiting, ready to go, engine, engine and rotor running, runners turning, and uh, he, he knew it was flying. He knew Ted was flying. He looked at me, walked around the front of the chopper, bashed on the window, Ted's window, he rolled the window down, and he said, I apologise for getting out of the chopper without permission. Now, oh. that was a brigadier talking to an equivalent of a first lieutenant. And uh, I thought well, that, that must was, make him a pretty significant guy. That shows the mark of the man. The, yeah. the troops and people loved him, I understand. We certainly did anyway. I did after that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, your whole career in Vietnam, what do you feel about the camaraderie with the other RAAF personnel, Australians I'm talking about, during that time? What was it like? Um, I think it all a bit in close relationship. I mean, we all shared the same risks and, and dangers, um, the same boredom and, and dreariness as well, uh, and sometimes the same hangovers. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was one of, um, of commitment to each other. I mean, we never thought about it being anything else. It was just a team with a high esprit de corps doing what they were trained to do, and, and I think doing it very well. Yeah. You're back, you've done your pilot's course back in Australia, you've done all that training. What sorts of jets did you get to become involved in and how? Oh, well... I mean, you've said Mirage. We, we did our wings tests at Pierce in Western Australia on Vampires, mm -hmm. which is a lovely aeroplane to fly. Um, twin, they were twin-seater side-by-side. And they had the two <coughs> tails at the, the end, didn't twin, they? Twin booms, twin yes, boom, yeah. yeah. And a balsa wood cockpit, yep. which was interesting. Balsa wood? <laughs> yeah, the front sides were... And I uh, had the pleasure of flying the last formation flight, or the last flight for vampires here at Williamtown. We used them for gunnery practice. And I was dragging the chain as number four coming off the bombing range. We were uh, told to be over the top of the base at a certain time for a photo opportunity. And um, they didn't want their formation stranded everywhere. And I was dra said dragging the chain. So we had a, a limit of 440 knots on the, on the vampire. And um, I saw that come and go with the power up, and I wonder why. I always wonder why that was there. And then I found out because a really great strip of canvas came off the front of the chopper and went, the front of the vampire went down the, I think went down the intake. The engine didn't hiccup, up, and I joined formation. We got the photo op, so all was okay. And it was the last time that aircraft flew anyway. So, <laughs> what was your next aircraft? Sabres. Uh, Sabres, yes. Flew um, after vampires and, and Mackies. I did Mackies for. Aerial work, uh, for high foot, high level formation, and all those sorts of things. Um, the vampire we used for air ground gunnery and, and bombing. Um, so I had finished flying both those two. I went and flew the Sabre with uh, 
Um, we're the last Sabre course as well. We're the last of everything on the way through. We're dragging the chain. Um, well, hey, listen, the F-18 is on its way out. You haven't been the last in that one. So. No, I flew the first one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you flew the first one. But, um, if the, the RAAF said to you, Bob, you've been such a wonderful member of the RAAF, we're going to give you a plane. Of all the planes you've flown, which would you want to take? Would it have to be a military aircraft? Preferably, because it's the RAAF. Oh, okay. Um, one that I actually would love just to fly would probably be the Sabre. Why is that? It was just a... It wasn't a very a very sophisticated aircraft in, in many ways. This flight control system was, from memory, was just a bunch of bungee cords under the, under the, uh, the cockpit floor, yeah. so it didn't have a lot of that feel. Um, but it was a big... Bulky aircraft, well, by standards then, and you sat up on top of that, uh, a bubble canopy cockpit, and um, you kind of felt like you were the, the king of the world. This thing was a day fighter. It was very manoeuvrable. Um, it had a good history of, uh, of in Korea with the Americans, uh, and it was just, it was probably because my first big jet that I'd flown was why I'd say that. Would... Part of the reason be that while every pilot in every plane has to be a good pilot to make the plane do what it's supposed to do, would it be because the planes that followed it are more technologically based, they're more reliant on computers, etc., whereas the, the Sabre, you still were the pilot. It was still, yes, you were in a jet, but you, you still were in control. Yeah, uh, it was. It was a day fighter. I mean, it, we did a little bit of night flying, but that was really scary stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was a day fighter. It was known as a day fighter. It was very manoeuvrable. It was designed to dogfight uh, and and win. Mm. Um, and it didn't have any computers. It, you had a pair of cannons, 30 mil cannons, and a pair of sidewinders, and, and that was it. Uh, the Mirage, when you moved to that, it actually had a radar, and so you could fly day and night. Uh, it has much more sophisticated weaponry, uh, radar missiles and, uh, and more sidewinders and, and, and cannons. Um, but it was moving into a more sophisticated arena mm. uh, as an interceptor um, and sometimes ground attack. Uh, and then the F-18, I'm not sure, it had seven plus computers on board. It had a completely different logic. It flew like an aeroplane, had a completely different logic. Um, and... Was it the had a much more complicated um, Did the F-18 process. have heads-up display on the screen or in the helmet or both? Oh, no, it didn't. It was, was pre-helmet days. Pre-helmet It, was, it days. was in the windscreen, the, head, okay. the HUD. Um, but the computing and the things, the things the F-18 could do when we first bought it was just sheer wizardry. I mean, for the first time, probably my life when I was... Not when I couldn't see the ground, I still knew exactly where I was because between your legs there was a moving map display and it showed you exactly where you were, where you were going, and where you'd been. I mean, sure, it was terrific. Just take me through your progress through. I mean, you ended up as Air Vice Marshal, which is pretty significant. Just take me through this for someone listening now who wants to try and understand the the ranking system in the RAAF. Take me through your progress across the ranks, how that occurred and why it occurred and what you had to do to be involved in doing that. I could just say uh, undetected crime. Well, that's <laughs> one thing. You've just had the sabre taken away from you. They've taken <laughs> yeah. uh, well, junior officer, uh, your, your job is just to fly, you know, and, and, and fly and, and work your way through that process and develop. Um, 
I was a pilot option in Vietnam, flying choppers. By the time I came back to to fly sail, came to fly sabers. I moved for the ranks for flight lieutenant and then uh, flying officer, then flight lieutenant. Um, and uh, you expanded your capabilities um, by going through various courses. I did a fighter combat instructor course, mm-hmm. which is probably probably the hardest course I've ever done, um, and one of the most satisfying once you'd passed it. Um, so you learnt to uh, be good at your job and, and continually improve your your skills and capabilities mm. as a junior officer. As a senior officer, you started to get involved with leadership issues with men. You had a, I was a flight commander of a couple of uh, training units, then of a, uh, a squadron. Um, then an executive officer was the next step up as a squadron leader. That's really the two I see of the squadron in, in inverted commas, uh, but responsible for the flying operations of the sure. squadron where the CEO's got to worry about everything uh, next rank up as a wing commander and, and that in, generally entails if you're lucky enough to be commanding officer of a squadron I was a commanding officer of a number three squadron mm-hmm. we had about 230 people on board I think there was about 12 pilots and the rest were, were support uh, mm-hmm. technical people and admin people um, so it's a, a fairly large group of people to to coordinate, to control, um, to nurture, and to look after. Is if you stay in the RAF long enough and you're committed, are you going to prog- not necessarily become the air vice marshal, but are you going to progress through the RAF if you make it your career and you're committed to it? Uh, you, or are yes. you going to be always a cadet? No, no, you'll always you'll be promoted through the ranks up through, and, and the higher you get in the rank system the fewer there are and the more p- competitive it becomes. Sure. So your chances of achieving the higher levels of ranks diminishes, if you like, as you go up the rank level. I understand. Um, so it's uh, a combination of your personal attributes, your skill levels, your commitment, um, your desire to be we'll still in the Air Force. let 35 go by. Or is it an 18? That sounds like an 18. 18, yeah. It's not as rumbly down no, here in the stomach. It's not as noisy. Um, as Air Vice Marshal, I mean, that's that puts you at number two at the top of the tree. Everyone is now below you. What well, responsibility... There's, there's never everyone below you. There's always somebody above you. <laughs> we'll let that plane who is above us keep flying. <clears throat> what extra dimensions of responsibility does an Air Vice Marshal have now for all of the team under him or her what does that do to you in terms of your mental attitude towards the the service personnel below you um i don't think it changes um leadership is leadership and and with leadership comes uh responsibility for your unit or whatever it is to um operate and, and operate well and, and succeed be successful but it also means you look at the people that make that happen and you're responsible for their welfare for their uh, commitment well, their commitment in some ways their focus and, mm. and the job you want them to do um, and um, and making sure they're cohesive as a unit that they're they feel a part of the team and that they are the part of the team and mm. they move forward well when you move up the ranks that that attitude doesn't change it just means you apply it to different groups of people or, or sometimes larger groups of people but it also means uh, so that part in my mind doesn't change I felt the same way about that when I was a flight commander to when I was a mm. two-star 
what does change is your your uh, level and area of responsibility and sphere of responsibility. Um, for example, uh, as commander of the Australian Theatre, or as now headquarters jock, um, as I had to look, I was operating at what they call the operational level of war or the middle level of, of war. So yeah. all the tactical units, the squadrons and things worked through their process up to, and you would um, be responsible for coordinating what they were going to do or the, the campaign they're about to wage. Mm. Um, you also had to be looking at the strategic level and seeing what, in my case, what the CDF, the Chief of Defence Force, wanted done. Mm. Um, so there's very much uh, that awareness that you're now producing plans and operations at a much wider scale, uh, with probably, more, probably and generally more people involved. Were you still, because you retired in 2001, mm-hmm. were you still in the Air Force during 9-11? Uh, yes, I was. In fact, I'd just been—I um, just handed over command of uh, of a theatre to uh, Chris Ritchie, who subsequently became chief of navy. And um, I'd moved house on the base. I was still waiting to get to move move away from uh, the base. We're on, on HMS Watson at uh, Sydney. Um, and the phone rang, and they said, "Turn the TV on and have a look at what's what's happening." And uh, we did, and didn't, thought it was a B-grade movie. We didn't believe it, but I wasn't the person they should have been calling. They had to, they should have been calling the commander who had taken over two days earlier. Yeah. And so he was promptly advised, and I just bowed out. But as a still current, almost member of the ADF, mm-hmm. what went through your head in terms of what happened? Oh, firstly, it was disbelief you know, that they could do that. And I guess they went through a lot of US heads as well, yeah. that they could actually be attacked. Um, I think it was an awareness that our our world had just changed, certainly in the military and, 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 and in strategic security sense had just changed, and that uh, now we're about to engage in a much more sophisticated mm. uh, and complicated um, period of... Almost warfare. As has become yes. the, the case ever since. All right, you've left, you've retired, and you end up getting a job, and I'm not going to be political about this, but you end up getting a job at Government House as ADC to Sir Paul Hasluck, and no, you didn't? Uh, no, I did that when I was a flight lieutenant. You well, did that when you were a flight lieutenant? Well, that's the normal rank for an ADC. He's the gopher. He goes around and does all the things that the, AD, that the Governor General wants. Uh, no, I did that in 1973, uh, four. Okay, well, it must have been jo- in the 70s, because one of them was Sir John Kerr. So, oh, yes. yeah, okay, it was in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, well, okay. There was a Paul Hasluck. Um, what was Sir Paul Hasluck like? Can you recall? No, no, we won't. He was, as I said, uh, I don't want to be political, but, but as an ADC. No, he was a, a, a man who had was just reaching the end of his tenure as a, a Governor-General, and right. Governors-General... I'm not sure what they're like now, but it was a pretty intense sort of a life. And, uh, in fact, they didn't really have any personal life. And How was, intense for you, though, as the ADC? It was very intense. You, you weren't allowed to be married. You had to... Uh, I didn't get out of the government house for the first six weeks while I was under, under training. Oh, um, gosh. But uh, it, was, it was it was very interesting. You'd learn a lot about uh, which way your knives and forks go and uh, <laughs> and also about people and I discovered that the no matter the the strata of or the hierarchy of uh, of our community people are still people yeah a good a good point um, it's something that I was involved with you and it was a great pleasure to work with you and that was the centenary of the Anzac Advisory Council yes um, 
How important was that for you? Because now you're definitely retired. This is in the 2015-2012 period. How important was it to be involved in that and how important was it to publish a very, very significant book about personnel who had been involved from New South Wales in, in any war? Well, I was actually I was honoured to be a part of the team. I mean, um, military history, military tradition. My grandfather was in World War One as a, uh, a light light horseman who was transferred to the artillery. He lost a leg in the final push uh, up against uh, the, the Hindenburg line and pushing the Germans backwards. So, and I grew up to know him as a as a, a totally permanently incapacitated soldier, mm. minus a leg. So, yeah, I had a lot of feeling for uh, for that. Mm. Um, I had a phone call from Pete Cosgrove and um, we had worked together in East Timor, um, so we knew each other sure. well and he asked me would I join him in this group. My first question was, what does it entail? He didn't tell me of course, he never does, but uh, that was once again a good working relationship and I was honoured to be a part of that team and I was there as the, um, if you like, the Air Force representative to make sure that we covered the three services mm. properly and completely and mm. and I enjoyed it it was very it was very good globally the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief the RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.